Good morning. Open up your Bibles, if you would, to Acts chapter 1. We are actually going to finish the first chapter this morning. You see the speedy rate we're going? Only 27 chapters to go. If I do the whole book. Which <laughs> I don't know yet. All right, you can see the outline up there on the board. I hope you can see it from where you're sitting. But we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 1, verses 12 to 26. The title for our lesson is A Productive Wait. And the three-part outline consists of a supplicating assembly, a scriptural assurance, and a substitute apostle. All right, let's begin our lesson then. And by the way, I don't know that you'll get the lesson this afternoon, but you have two weeks. I got to go home and work on it. I got to polish it up quite a bit. So don't maybe look for it. Louise, maybe I'll send it to you tomorrow after tomorrow's Bible study, okay? All right. Now, if you were, if you just happened to be reading sequentially through the New Testament, and you came to the last page of the Gospel of John and then turned and read in the very next page after the Gospel of John these words. Just suppose that these were the next words you read. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle. To all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints. That's from Acts chapter 1. I mean Romans chapter 1. If you read that, after you finished reading John, you turned and you read what I just read, do you think you might be a little bit confused? Mm-hmm, I think so. Would you wonder, who is Paul? Never read about that man. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, never heard about him. And how did he get to be an apostle? And how are there suddenly believers in Rome, of all places? That is why the Holy Spirit led Luke to write for us the historical account of the early church in the book of Acts for the answer of those types of questions and many more. But Acts doesn't just fill in the gaps. It also shows us who make up the church today. It shows us, 20 centuries later, how we are to be operating to reach our world for the Lord Jesus Christ. It even shows us how to conduct church business meetings. Can you believe that? From the book of Acts. And that's going to be part of what we find out about today in our lesson entitled, A Productive Wait. What were they doing while they were waiting? Remember he had told them to wait? in Jerusalem until the promise of the Father. One of the things they did was they had a business meeting. The book of Acts is a way to not only model, but to gauge, you know, kind of like a standard of measurement, how we today are doing as church and as individuals and as local churches, how we are doing in accomplishing the Lord's work and his will for his church in the world. It is the record of a generation of believers who fulfilled Acts 1.8. They show us it can be done. They did indeed reach the uttermost part of their known world back then. In just one generation. So they show us it can, can be done. And what is our responsibility today? The 21st century. 
to do it again. We have more tools than they had. We've, we have the whole Bible. We have technology, all sorts of things. Well, prior to his ascension, the Lord had told his men not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he, would, he explained would be the baptism of the Holy Spirit. He would baptize believers into the church, his body, his bride. And when would that happen? He told them not many days hence. And of course, we know that it would be in 10 more days on the day of Pentecost. And they obeyed him good to see that the first thing they did after the Lord ascended back into heaven, the first thing they did was they obeyed him. They were obedient. You know, we want to applaud them, right? They did remain in Jerusalem. They returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, from which he he had ascended, and they go back to that city, even though that is a very dangerous city for them to be in, Jerusalem. Forty-three days earlier, they had killed their master. So that's a a dangerous place. But they go back, they go to the upper room, and they are joined there by a host of other believers. How many, in fact? A hundred and twenty. A hundred and twenty believers in the upper room. That was a large room. They know that because a hundred and twenty people fit in that room. And it was there that they conducted what we could call their first pre-church business meeting, okay? However, before we consider that productive, Christ-centered business meeting, I do want to point out that these people, these believers, did not spend the next 10 days after the Lord's ascension tucked away, hidden in that upper room. We are told in Luke 24 that after the Lord's ascension, the men were, they returned to Jerusalem with great joy, it said. As you can imagine, great exceeding joy. And they were continually in the temple praising and blessing God. That's in Luke 24, the end of the the chapter. So what we know then from Luke in his gospel account and Luke in the book of Acts is that for the next 10 days before the day of Pentecost and the coming of the Holy Spirit, these people were spending their time alternating between praising God in the temple and praying to God in the upper room. What I, I'm pointing that out to show you that they are no longer hiding behind closed doors because of fear of the Jews. They're waiting, you know, they're praising God openly out in the public forum of the temple. What does that tell you? That they're no longer, I mean, the Jews are still dangerous to them, but they're no longer fearful of the Jews, are they? Meaning the religious rulers. Because to go openly into the temple shows that they are no longer fearful. Um, So that's what they do. When they're not in the temple, they are likewise praising God through prayer and through Bible study and by obedience to what they find out God's word tells them to do. Although the Lord is no longer visibly present to lead them, nonetheless, they were not without his leading. So that's our introduction. Let's look now at a supplicating assembly, and we'll be reading verses 12 to 14. It says, Then returned they unto Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, called Olivet, which is from Jerusalem a Sabbath day's journey. That's about a half to three-fourths of a mile from the Mount of Olives to Jerusalem. 
And when they were come in, they went up into an upper room, where abode both Peter and James and John and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon Zelotes and Judas the brother brother of James. Another name for Judas there, that last Judas. Of course, that's not Judas Iscariot. But another name for this last Judas is Thaddeus or Labaius. It's one and the same man. Verse 14. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brethren. All right. The list of the apostles' names that's given to us there in verse 13 in this pre-church assembly is certainly a record of the triumph of God's grace. Is it not? Every one of those men listed in verse 13 had forsaken the Lord at the time of his arrest in Gethsemane. Smite the shepherd and what happened to the sheep? They scattered. Peter, do you notice? He is graciously still listed first, even though he had denied the Lord three times. Yet, here we find that he is fully restored as the leader of the group. Now, if the Lord wasn't so gracious, wouldn't you maybe think Peter's name would be at the end of that list? But no, he's restored to leadership. That is grace. And Thomas the once proud skeptic who had placed his own opinion above the witness of all the others with regard to the bodily resurrection. He's here, isn't he? He's listed. Even the Lord's half-brothers, James and Joseph and Jude and Simon, we know their names from Mark 6.3, even they are among the 120 believers in the upper room adding to this trophy case of grace. You know, not one of those half-brothers had believed in Jesus during his ministry, had they? None of them believed in him. But what had he done in, again, his grace? He had made a private post-resurrection appearance to James, probably the next in line half-brother, the oldest of all of his half-brothers. And that's in 1 Corinthians 5, uh, 15, 7. And James, of course, the minute the Lord appeared to him in his resurrected body, James became convinced, utterly convinced in the deity of his elder half-brother. And what do you think James did, along with the help of his mother? Mm, they convinced the other brothers of the deity of Jesus. And they are here in this group of 120 and then we know from other scripture that the Lord also had half-sisters. At least two, because you can't use sisters plural unless there's at least two. And I would guess that since the brothers and the mother are here, that so too are the sisters. Well, I counted up how many that is that we know about at this point. The apostles, there's 11. There's four brothers and at least two sisters. That comes to 17 of the 120. 
But I wanted to uh, ask you a question. Do, how many of you have family members who are unsaved? Yeah, that's what I thought. I certainly do too. You know what? You can have a holy boldness to ask the Lord to do for your family what he did for his own. That is not being irreverent. That is stating the facts. And that is being aggressive in, and bold in your prayer. And aren't we told that we as believers have the privilege to come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need? What could be more needful than the salvation of your loved ones? Right? You agree? So, I mean, he was merciful and gracious with his own family. He even made a special post-resurrection appearance to his brother. And then all the brothers got saved, and I imagine the sisters as well. So ask him to duplicate for you what he did for them, for his own family. I had never thought about that before. I have an unsaved brother and sister, and I'm, gonna, I'm praying like that now. Do for my family what you did for your own, Lord. Come boldly. He, like, he doesn't frown on a prayer like that. It's not his will that any should perish. Well, returning to the subject of the upper room assembly of believers, I would assume that Cleopas, who was he? Remember him? On the road to Emmaus? I would imagine he and his traveling companion, whoever he or she was, that they were also there in this upper room. Maybe Thomas's twin was there. Remember, Thomas's other name is Didymus because he's a twin. Maybe his twin was there. Now, don't you know that Lazarus, along with his two sisters, Martha and Mary, would have been included in the 120? They were from Bethany, only like two miles away. And if they were there, I think that probably Simon the former leper, who Jesus had healed, he also lived in Bethany, that he too would be among these 120. And I would be surprised if Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus were not included. They're searching through the scripture, we're going to find out. Where do you think they got the scrolls for the scripture? If Jesus didn't supply them. Well, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea would certainly have access to scripture roles. And then, too, there were all, we know this, all the faithful Galilean women are included under the women in verse 14. Who would they be? Well, Mary Magdalene, for one, Joanna, Susanna, Salome, <coughs> Mary's sister, the mother of James and John, the wife of Zebedee, also Mary, the wife of Alphaeus, who had two sons, James and Joseph. James was an apostle, not James and John, that, not that James, the sons of thunder, but James the less they referred to him. Joseph is perhaps mentioned because as this son of Mary and brother of one of the apostles, he too was a believer, and when Luke wrote his name, the early church knew who Joseph was, so he probably was in this room. Maybe Alphaeus, their father, was there. That's very possible. And maybe Zebedee was there, the mother of Salome and the father of James and John. Are you getting confused? <laughs> but surely young John Mark and his mother were there because 
It's apparently John Mark's mother who owned the house that had the upper room. Did you know that? Well, you could read about it in Acts 12.12. They would have been there. I added those up. That comes to 19. So we have 17 in the first list, 19 now. Perhaps some of the people that the Lord had healed, such as the impotent man at the pool of Bethesda who laid there for 38 years. Maybe he was there. Maybe the man who had been born blind. I love that man. In John chapter 9, maybe he was there. And what about Zacchaeus? You know, little Zacchaeus? And Bartimaeus, another man who had been blind and healed. Maybe they were among the 120. Men we come to know later on in the chapters of the book of Acts very well could have been in this room. We haven't met them yet, but we will. Such as Barnabas, Silas, Stephen, and Judas Barsabbas. Also, there are definitely two men in this room who we have never heard about before in the gospel records. We know they're there because we're given their names. They had actually witnessed Jesus' entire ministry. We're going to talk about that when we look at verse 22. They had been there from the time of John the Baptist. When John the Baptist baptized Jesus, these men were there, and they were there all the way through to his ascension. Who were they? A man named Joseph, surnamed Justice, also called Barsabbas. Some of these guys had multiple names. (laughs) And then another one, Matthias. They were definitely there. We know that. Okay, so I added those up. That's another 10. So I had 17 and then 19 and now 10. So who has not been mentioned? Who have I not yet mentioned? Well, I did sort of in passing. But if you look at the end of verse 14, Mary, the Lord's mother. Did you know that this is the first mention of her since the Lord's death and his resurrection? Where did we last see Mary? At the foot of the cross. Mm Mm-hmm. And this is also the the very last mention of Mary in the scripture. That's interesting. It's the last time we read about Mary in the whole rest of the New Testament. So it's very important to notice her position. Do you know what her position is? She is on bended knee, praying right alongside all of the others in that room. Nobody is praying to her. Did you get that? For her role as the divinely chosen mother of the Lord Jesus, she does deserve respect. For being a woman of faith and a woman of integrity and virtue, she definitely deserves honor. But Mary does not deserve our worship. No, no, no. She is, was, in as much need of a Savior as the rest of us. For people to elevate Mary to a position even as co-redemptrix, co-redeemer with Jesus Christ, is not only contrary to the Word of God, Because the word of God clearly says there is only one mediator between God and men. And it is Christ Jesus. 
not Mary. You do not have to pray to Mary so that she will get her son's attention and say, will you please listen to Catherine's prayer? One mediator, and that is Christ Jesus. So not only is to elevate her to that kind of position against scripture, but it's also contrary to Mary's own words. When Jesus was in her womb, she called him her savior. You can read her, her poem, her song it's called, in Luke 1 verses 46 to 50. So Mary's included. All right, so the definite list of people we know were in that room, along with my suggested list, that comes to a total of 47. So there are still some 73 others included who we can guess about who may have been in that room. Maybe some of their spouses were in that room. Maybe some of their children were in that room. Young John Mark, or maybe teenage children were there. I don't know. But that's one of your homework questions, and you can have fun with it. Okay? That's fun. Isn't that fun? I enjoy doing that. I mean, these were real people, and they were there. The important thing, you know, we might not know, have known all of them who were there, but the important thing is that the Lord knew every one of them, as he likewise knows every one of us gathered in this room today. The rest of the world might not know us and know our names or even care, right? But the Lord knows. And what was it that those 120 people were doing while they waited in Jerusalem for the promise of the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Verse 14, look at it. It says, these all, you notice all, these all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication. Isn't that wonderful? These all continued in one accord, with one accord. You know what we're talking about? Men and women. We're talking about Galileans and Judeans. We are talking about fishermen and members of the Sanhedrin Council. Pharisee. We're talking about young and old, rich and poor, former beggars and former lepers. And you could go on and on. And they're all unified. They are all with one accord. Now in Greek, I wrote this up there for you. It's a compound one word in Greek. It's homothemadon. Homo, if you think of the word homo sapien, homo sapien, homo means, um, it's, it means the same as. Same. And, uh, I lost my place. Themos, that's the second part of that word, means spirit or mind. So it means they have the same mind. That word, if you look at Acts 2, 1, it's, in our English translation, it looks like three words, with one accord. But in Greek, like I said, it's just one word, omothemadon, is found seven times in the book of Acts. Isn't that interesting? Seven, there you go, perfection. Um, so, Like-mindedness and unity of spirit are critical factors. That's what the book of Acts is telling us seven times. To have the same mind, same spirit, that's going to be a critical factor if the church is going to fulfill the Great Commission. Wouldn't you say that's part of our problem today? With the church? Speaking corporately of all born-again believers? Kind of divided up, aren't we? 
Paul said in Romans 15, Now the God of patience and consolation grant you to be like-minded one toward another according to Christ Jesus, that ye may with one mind and one mouth glorify God. Well, these believers, they were doing it right. They were really unified. They had one heartbeat. They had one passion. They were Christ-centered. They're not only like-minded in their prayers, but they're passionate in their prayers. The word continued, where it says all continued in the Greek, that speaks of giving their strength and their energy. They gave all they had, their passion, to something. Uh, And what was that something? Prayer and supplication. Prayer was a vital priority for these people while they were waiting for the Father's promise of the Spirit. Now notice this. They were promised the Spirit. They were promised the Spirit. It's called the promise of the Father. The Lord did not tell his followers that if they prayed and asked for the Spirit, he would come. He told them to wait for the Spirit. It was the Father's promise for them. Actually, Jesus is the one who prayed for the Spirit on their behalf. In John 14, 16, he said, I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, who we know, of course, was the Holy Spirit. So they weren't told to pray for the Spirit. That was a promise. He had prayed for it. They were told to wait for the Spirit. You see, the coming of the Spirit was not dependent on their prayers. It was dependent on the Father's promise. They would have received the Holy Spirit whether they prayed for him or not. Do you get that? Do you know what I'm saying? There are people who think you have to pray for the Spirit. No, it's a promise. If you accept Christ, you receive the Spirit right then and there. He indwells you. If you don't have the Spirit, you are none of his. Romans 9 something or other, 15. So what do you think these people were praying about? Well, likely their prayers were full of heartfelt praise to God and to his Son. Now that the Lord Jesus was no longer physically with them, prayer was going to be their new means of communication with him. This is the first time since he's gone that they are actually praying and talking to him. And I would imagine that they are asking for boldness and grace and faithfulness and pure hearts, and all the beatitude attributes, and love even for their enemies, and for everything else that they would be, they knew would be needed in the days ahead as they were going to serve as his witnesses to a hostile world. And it says they were also in supplication. Prayer is basically for general supplication and is sometimes for the more specific things. For whom or... What about do you think they might have been supplicating? Well, maybe they're yet unbelieving friends and relatives like we just talked about. Uh, I would think they were probably praying for the blind leaders of their nation. Do you think they were praying for the Jewish people? Do you think they were praying for Gentile people? I don't know, that might have been going a little too far. (laughs) 
You notice I didn't say that maybe the Roman centurion was in the group of 120. I also thought about Simon the Cyrene, but I don't know. Maybe he went back to Cyrene. You know, he's the one who carried the Lord's cross. I don't know, but you know, you can keep guessing on that homework question who was there. But I don't think the Roman centurion was there. I'm not sure that they were praying for Gentile people, but maybe I'm not giving them enough credit. Maybe they were. Do you think, too, that they might have been praying like we yet do today for the Lord's soon return? I think they were probably saying, hurry up, come back, you know, and set up your kingdom. You know, this is really, really very refreshing. This is a refreshing change from the apostles that we heard about in the gospel accounts. You know, those guys who were jockeying for um, and arguing about positions of honor in the kingdom? Remember those guys? (laughs) Do you realize how easily division could have been brought into this assembly here by Satan if these people were not united like this with one accord in prayer? What if somebody from the Lord's family had tried to claim a special recognition just because of a flesh relationship to him? What if one of them denounced Peter? In a little bit, we're going to see that Peter stands up and takes his role as leader and conducts the business meeting as the leader. What if one of the other guys had said, you have no business even being here with us, much less being our leader, after what you did? in denying the Lord. What if Mary had made a claim to superiority? What if the Galilean women who had remained with the Lord throughout his suffering on the cross had made themselves out to be better than the men and said, well, we're going to run this meeting. (laughs) Uh, What if Martha started complaining that nobody was helping her in the kitchen down below? What if if these guys were fighting over the foot washing basin and the towel? You know, the servant is going to be the greatest. (laughs) But none of that is going on, is it? They are all truly with one accord. You know, we can dictate our prayer times. We can approach prayer like we approach so many other things. We, we, We can schedule prayer We can organize it, we can manipulate it, and when we're done, guess what we get to do? Mark it off of our to-do list. I had my prayer time today. But this here was not a scheduled prayer meeting that ended maybe like after 15 minutes or even after an hour. This was continual for how many days? Ten days, and guess what? It goes on throughout that whole generation. Throughout the book of Acts, the believers are praying. These were men and women who knew that they were called by the Lord God Almighty to do a worldwide work. And they were on their knees about it. Is that not a little bit convicting, ladies? Because we have the same call. Nobody could have organized this even if they tried and the reason is because they, they had a passion and they had an energy and they had a one heartbeat about this that put the Lord's will and the Lord's work as their priority. And you cannot organize that and schedule that. It just has to be there inside. 
Isn't this desperately what the church needs today? You know, regardless of all of our little denominational titles, you know, you don't find a single denomination in the New Testament, except Baptists. John, John. I'm being funny, all right. <laughs> but you don't find any denomination, you don't find any divisions like that. Shouldn't this be true of all genuinely born-again believers, that we have the same mind, the same heartbeat about getting the gospel to every corner of this planet? Shouldn't we be persistently passionate in our prayers to win the lost for him? You know, history has shown, church history has shown that even one person, one man, or one woman on her knees, passionately and persistently, one man, even one young person, can start a revival, a, a, a sweeping revival. And by the way, revival is not evangelism. You know, when we pray, kind of like I just said, but this wrong, when we pray for a revival to to sweep through the United States of America, that's not exactly correct because you can't have a revival of something that has never been alive. Revival is for the people of God. You know, when you pray for revival, it's for the church. Revival is for you and I. You know, we're the reason that this country is in the predicament it's in. It's because of the people of God. We need revival. But whenever there's been a genuine revival, what does naturally follow? Evangelism follows. Because a natural outcome of a revived church is that believers become very, very concerned about unbelievers. As one old-time preacher said one time, he said, prayer is like uh, men who used to ring the big bells in these, in these large cathedrals, you know, kind of like the hunchback of Notre Dame. You know, they have these, and, and prayer is kind of like those men pulling on the ropes and pulling on the ropes. And as we do, up there in heaven, the bells start to ring. God hears, and he sends his blessings down on his people. That's a good little thing that he said, isn't it? That's a good analogy. We desperately need to get back on our knees and admit our failure as a generation of believers in this area of prayer. One-minded, one-hearted, passionate, persistent prayer. We, we need to go back to beseeching God to do those great and mighty things that he wants to do for us. Because without him we can do what? Absolutely. If we don't ask, we're not going to receive, are we? These people prayed passionately for 10 days and they saw 3,000 souls get saved. Acts chapter 2, verse 41. Effective prayer doesn't take a lot of eloquence. You don't have to have a big vocabulary to pray. It doesn't take a lot of skill. All it takes is a united heartbeat of the righteous people of God. In my dining room, I have a a framed uh, picture of James 5.16. What does it say? The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man or woman availeth much. There's nothing that Satan loves better 
than to divide assemblies of believers. There is nothing Satan loves better than to divide Christians. Have you noticed that? Hmm. So shouldn't every single one of us be burdened to pray that the Lord will do something special in our generation? Wouldn't you love to see that? I do. I would love to see that before I go home to be with him or before he comes. We definitely need it. We are in the Laodicean stage of church history, yes, but that doesn't mean we can't be Philadelphia-type Christians, can't, does it? Or even Smyrna-type Christians. They were the persecuted church, and it may come to that, but there's overcomers in every church. There's even overcomers in the Laodicean church stage of history. All right, let's move on to a scriptural assurance, and for this we'll look at verses 15 to 22. And in those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples and said, the number, now this is just a real parenthesis that Luke is telling us, the number of names together were about 120. And here's what Peter said. Men and brethren, and that's generic, it includes the women too, okay? (laughs) This scripture must needs have been fulfilled, which the Holy Ghost by the mouth of David spake, before concerning Judas, which was guide to them that took Jesus. For he was numbered with us and had obtained part of this ministry. Now this man purchased a field with the reward of iniquity, and falling headlong, he burst asunder in the midst, and all his bowels gushed out. That's kind of gory. That was the end of Judas. And it was known unto all the dwellers at Jerusalem, insomuch as that field is called in their proper tongue, and this would be in Aramaic, Akeldama. That is to say, the field of blood. For it is written in the Psalms, in the book of Psalms, let his habitation be desolate, and let no man dwell therein, and his, and I love this, and his bishopric let another take. That is a strange word. It means let his office another take. Uh, Wherefore, of these men which have companied with us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John unto that same day that he was taken up, that's his ascension, from us, must one be ordained to be a witness with us of his resurrection. Sorry about that reading. I just got really dizzy, really dizzy up here. Hmm, that's strange. Well, I've been up since four. I guess it's time to go to bed. (laughs) Okay, Peter, Peter, Peter. He takes the initiative as leader. Stands up in the midst of, of the disciples and the others gathered there. And he begins to speak. Now, he has been criticized by some for doing this. But he should not be. He's been criticized for taking the leadership role here. But the Lord had made it crystal clear to Peter and to the others, remember, in, the, in their presence there on the shore of Galilee, you can read John 21, he had made it sure uh, to everybody that even though Peter was no, certainly no better or more righteous than the others, but the Lord had made it clear that Peter was indeed restored to a leadership position among the twelve. He had restored him. And scripture affirmed this. We just read that in the list of names in verse 13. Who was still listed first? Peter. So scripture affirms this. 
Peter's name is first, even now after his denials. So he's first among equals. Doesn't make him any better. He's just the leader. He was a natural leader, wasn't he? Now, seemingly together with the others, Peter had been meditating about the gap or the vacancy in the rank, the ranks of the apostolate. The Lord had originally chosen how many men to be apostles? Out of all his disciples, he chose originally chose 12. He had also promised, and they had heard this, that there would be 12 of them sitting one day on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So there's a bit of a problem. You know, they're thinking this through because now there's only 11 of them. One had been a deceiver, a betrayer, and he was now dead. So they're one short, aren't they? This vacancy in the apostolate was a dilemma to them. So what did they decide to do? Very smart. Search the scripture to see what they could find. And guess what? They found the answer in several psalms. We'll talk about that. You see, what these early believers were doing is something else by way of example for you and I that is absolutely vital if the modern church is to understand and do what it's been called to do. They mixed their one accord prayer with what? Bible study. Those are two things that God never intended to be separated. What God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. As you pray, ladies, have your Bible in your lap. And as you do your Bible reading, pray. They go hand in hand. Don't put them asunder. This is exactly what was going on here. These men and women were praying as they were searching the scripture. They had been trained well. They had been trained by the master, who in his post-resurrection appearances had shown them, starting with those two on the road to Emmaus, the things concerning himself from where? From Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. In other words, the whole Old Testament. He taught them the things concerning himself. He had done the same thing again with the apostles in the upper room. He taught them from the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. He opened their understanding, it says in Luke 24, 44 and 45, that they might understand the scripture and all things concerning himself. He said all these things must be fulfilled. So what were they doing as they're searching their scrolls? And remember, they didn't have chapter and verse division, so that'd be pretty tough. It'd be hard to find something. Um, what were they searching for? They were looking for messianic prophecies, as the Lord had taught them to do. And, uh, and they found what they were looking for. So Peter, taking the leadership role, stands up and glory be. Oh me, isn't it thrilling? Does this just not thrill you to the soles of your feet that the first words out of Peter's mouth <laughs> deal with the absolute necessity of the scripture being fulfilled? Isn't that exciting? This is a different Peter. What he is saying here is no longer based on his own opinions and his own ideas, like we heard all through the gospel accounts. 
you know, oh Lord, well let's build three tabernacles up here on this Mount of Transfiguration because you're on an equal basis with Elijah and Moses. And God had to speak from heaven, you know, to correct that one. Remember in the Garden of Gethsemane? What does he do? Chops off guy's ear. You know, impetuous Peter. But here, he's not speaking his own ideas on things. You know, Lord, may it never be. I rebuke you. You're not going to die. He doesn't impetuously jump up and say whatever has popped into his head. Instead, he has been praying. And he has been searching the scripture in one accord with the others. So he has a bold confidence, but this time it's not based on his own ideas. His bold confidence is based on the truth of the word of God. Peter even sounds like the master because he begins by saying, this scripture must needs be fulfilled. Now, what scripture is he talking about? Well, in verse 20, if you drop down to verse 20, he quotes from the verse, actually there's two verses from two different psalms that he's referring to. The first one he refers to is from Psalm 69, 25. And I'll get back to that in a little bit. But by now, these people would know that Psalm 69, Psalm 69 was definitely a messianic psalm. How would they know that? Well, if you read that psalm, you would know it. Um, it talks a lot about the Lord's agony and everything. But Jesus even quoted from that psalm before he went to the cross as an explanation for why he was hated without a cause. So they knew Psalm 69 had to do with the Messiah. Something else to notice about Peter's words. What? Look at verse um, 16 and also... Well, no, look at verse 16, Peter's words there. What is Peter's view of Scripture? Did Peter believe that scripture was divinely inspired? That it was God-breathed? That it was written by God the Holy Spirit? Absolutely. Absolutely. His words reflect that he had an exalted view of scripture. Peter believed in divine inspiration. In reference to the two Psalms of David that he quotes from, he said that the Holy Ghost spake those words by the mouth of David. Actually, you know, David had songs that he sang and then he wrote them down, so it's also by the pen of David. You know what? You could not ask for a more clear description of divine inspiration in the Word of God, unless it's, you know, all Scripture, divine inspiration. But this is so clear. Peter is saying what he would later write in his second epistle. He is saying, For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man. You know what that's saying? The books of the Old Testament aren't just the will of man. Men writing things from their own thoughts and will. It says, For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of men, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Do you want to know why the early Christians were able to advance the gospel throughout their known world? Because they genuinely believed that the scripture was the word of God. They genuinely believed it. They had an exalted view of the Bible. Of course, back then it was the Old Testament. Yes, it is the writings of godly men such as David but it is inspired by the Holy Spirit of the living God. 
Do you understand that? Do you have that exalted view of Scripture? Do you know that revival never comes to a people who have a low view of Scripture? It doesn't come to a church that finds fault with Scripture, that criticizes the Word of God and says, well, this is an error, this is a contradiction. It doesn't come to a people who gives the world the word pathetic excuses um, or gives the world its pathetic excuses about the writings of the Apostle Paul. Have you heard Paul criticized in churches? Oh, that's not, you know, really divine inspiration. That was just Paul's opinion. And you know he was kind of anti-women. Are you attending a church that has an exalted view of Scripture? Or does your church give excuses for the world, you know, the, that the, the Bible is full of uh, mythological stories about creation and Jonah? You know, you really can't swallow that, can you? You get it? <laughs> and Noah, he didn't really, you know, it was just a local little flood, right? That's why he took 120 years to build an ark for a little local flood. Um, and, you know, you really don't need to believe in a virgin birth and, you know, really believe in a bodily resurrection. If Christians are asking for a fresh spill, spilling of the Spirit of God on themselves and on their local church and for the corporate church worldwide, how do we think it is ever going to happen with a low view of what the Spirit has already said and has already done in the Scripture? An exalted view honors the Holy Spirit by believing what he has already told us through the hands of holy men. Holy men of God. Isn't this exactly how the Lord Jesus began his earthly ministry? Remember when he was tempted for 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness? How did he defeat Satan? What did he say? It is written. Peter, I love it. Peter now begins not only his ministry, but really the ministry of the church. Because the church is about to be born. He begins the same way. This scripture must needs have been fulfilled, for it is written. That is great. Peter really learned. They all did. Now, here's my next question. Is this the view we have of the scripture passage before us today? I have a reason for asking you that. Is this the view we have? This scripture must needs be fulfilled. For it is written. Or are we dismissing this? Or do we have, uh, do we have a, a low view of what our, what our Bible says and what these people prayed about and found in the scripture and said this scripture must be fulfilled? And I'm saying that because you know there's a big issue about Matthias being assigned as the 12th apostle. Many say, no, they made a big mistake. That should not have been. That position was for Paul. So we'll get back to that in a minute. These 120 believers in Christ were praying, right? How were they praying? Passionately, in one accord, persistently. What else were they doing? Studying the scripture. And then under Peter's leadership, they engage in scriptural conversation about what they found in the scripture. They discuss those two Old Testament passages from two Psalms. 
and they have a business meeting, and guess what? The business meeting, again, is begun with prayer. And then they take action. But before we go there, let's finish with what Peter said in verse 16. The scripture that must be fulfilled, which David, by the Spirit, wrote about in Psalm 69, had to do with who? Judas. Judas Iscariot, who was guide to them that took Jesus. You see, instead of guiding people to the Lord Jesus to receive him as one who was numbered with the Lord's select group of apostles, what had Judas done? Instead of guiding people to Jesus, he guided those who arrested and crucified Jesus. He sold God's son for 30 pieces of silver, and he betrayed the Lord of glory with what? A kiss. That is pure evil. He was so evil, Satan entered into him. Don't ever have sympathy for Judas. He made his own choice, even though all this God knew ahead of time. And later, of course, feeling remorseful for his part in Jesus' crucifixion, but not repentant, just remorseful. Judas had returned that betrayal money to the hypocritical Jewish authorities who admitted that it was blood money. You know, when he threw it on the floor of the temple, they called it blood money. What were they confessing? You know what blood money was? It was money that was received as a bribe to condemn an innocent man. (laughs) So there they were saying, we condemn an innocent man, Jesus, to death. So they're hypocritical. You know, they, oh, we can't put that blood money back into the temple treasury. That's probably where they got it to begin with, you know. (laughs) Well, we can't do that, so we're going to look real pious in front of everybody, and so we're going to use that money to buy a potter's field where it'll be right outside of Jerusalem where we can bury strangers, you know, foreigners to the city who die when they're here. And so it was known as, it became known as Al-Qadama, which is Aramaic for field of blood. Of course, when they did that and bought that potter's field, They didn't know it, but they were fulfilling Zechariah 11.12, which had said many centuries ahead of time that that's exactly what they would do. Well, from Matthew 27.5, we know that Judas committed suicide by hanging himself. But now, for the first time, we have some additional information about his end, and it's not too pretty. From the description in Acts 1.18, it sounds like Judas had prepared his hanging at the edge of some kind of a precipice, you know, a cliff or something. Perhaps there was a tree and it had a branch that hung out over a cliff. And apparently his body, as he was hanging and choking, I don't know if he died first by the, the strangulation or if his body was just too heavy and the belt that he used or the rope or or maybe even the branch of the tree, his body was too heavy for it and it broke. I think because it says he fell headlong, which means he went head first and hit the ground, I think it must be, because if you had a rope and it broke or a belt around your tunic and it broke, you would fall feet first, right? But if the big branch fell, it would go and I think you'd maybe plunge headward. But it says he fell, he landed on his head. And when he did, it says his body burst asunder and his insides gushed out. That is absolutely not a very pretty picture, but but somewhat matching the not very pretty picture 
of this man's life. Judas's legacy is the most terrible, tragic legacy of all history. Worse, however, is the legacy that he left, worse than the legacy he left behind in the world. You know, nobody, I don't think anybody names their babies Judas. Have any of you? <laughs> I sure wouldn't. Um, but worse than the legacy he left behind is the legacy of his own eternal loss. It says at the end of verse 25 that he went to his own place. I don't exactly know what that means, but doesn't it sound like there's a separate compartment in hell for him? Hmm. I wouldn't care to ever find out what he went to his own place meant. Well, in the first part of Acts 1.20, Peter quotes from Psalm 69.25, which says, Let his habitation be desolate. And in the latter half of verse 20, he quotes from another psalm, Psalm 109, verse 8. It says, and his bishop prick, which means his office, is actually the Greek word episkopen, which is where we get the word episcopalian. It means let his office as overseer, um, let his office another take. Psalm 69 told about the desolated vacancy in the apostolate, and Psalm 109 told about the necessity of fulfilling that vacancy. Do you get it? Are you getting it? One told about the vacancy that there would be a desolate place in the apostolate. I mean, they came to understand this. And the other psalm told about the necessity of fulfilling that overseer vacancy. So all along, and even from Psalm 41.9 where it says that mine own familiar friend, one who ate bread with me, would bruise my would bruise me. Um, so all along, there had been an explanation in Scripture for what Judas had done, for what had taken place. The vacancy in the office of the Episcopan had been predicted, but so too was the necessity of filling that office. Peter and the others found a verse that explained what had happened, and likewise they found a second verse that explained to them what to do about what had happened. And so this is what orients us to the exact teaching of this passage. Let's look at the last verses, okay? 23 to 26, a substitute apostle. 23. And they appointed two. Joseph called Barsabbas, who was surnamed Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed. Now look at what they said in their prayer. Thou, Lord, which knowest the hearts of all men, show whether of these two thou hast chosen. Thou hast chosen. Show us which one you have chosen. That he may take part of this ministry and apostleship from which Judas by transgression fell, that he might go to his own place. And they gave forth their lots, and the lot fell upon Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. After prayer and Bible study, Peter led the unified believers into the first without Christ transaction of business. First time they're doing this on their own without him being present. Unfortunately, this, this uh, substitute apostle incident over the centuries has become a great issue of debate among God's people. Many question the action on the part of the, the 
part of the apostles saying that they ran ahead of God by selecting Matthias. That they should have waited on God because his choice for that 12th position was the apostle Paul. But if we remember why this passage is in the scripture, I believe that we're going to find out that what they did was entirely right and how they did it. If we were to extract this incident from the passage and look at what the disciples were doing, the passage becomes very instructive for future church generations of people who are preparing to advance the gospel into new territory. It is, to me, it's practically inconceivable that the Lord would answer one accord, persistent and passionate prayers and Bible searching of these faithful, dedicated believers by allowing them to choose the wrong man. That's just inconceivable. That he wouldn't, you know, if this wasn't who he wanted, that he wouldn't have somehow told them to wait. Wait. I've got someone else all figured out. So let's look at how they came to a decision and how to fill the vacancy of how to fill the vacancy left by Judas. In verse 22, we learn of the qualifications to have been one of the twelve. Right? First of all, he must have been a man who had first-hand witness of the Lord's entire ministry from the time that Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist all the way to his ascension. So to be one of the twelve, he had a have been a witness of the Lord's entire ministry, okay? Second, he must be a witness of the resurrected Lord during those 40 days when he came back in his post-resurrection body. Now, out of the 120, there were two men who met those qualifications other than the 11. And they were Joseph, called Barsabbas, who was surnamed Justice, and another man named Matthias. Now, both of these men were obviously highly esteemed by all the others. But they had learned a lesson. They had learned that they really didn't know the heart of a man, because they had thought Judas was highly, I mean, he was so highly esteemed, they gave him the position as treasurer. So they learned a lesson. And therefore... To the third qualification for an apostle was to be chosen by the Lord himself. And that's why these people directly pray for the Lord's choice in the matter. A principle for the church in generations to come is this, okay? Leaders must be appointed through prayer, by way of prayer. Why? Well, for one thing, the Lord alone knows the human heart. These people prayed for the Lord's leadership even though he was departed from them. Aren't they talking to him? Thou, Lord. Now they couldn't see him, right? Thou, Lord, who knoweth the hearts of all men, show whither of these two thou hast chosen. Remember what the book of Acts is? What is the book of Acts? The continual working work of the ascended Christ. And that's exactly what we see here. These people knew that they could still commune with him, even though he wasn't physically present with them. And again, as in their question back in Acts 1.6, you know, Lord, will thou restore the kingdom at this time? Notice the full confidence that they have in his true person. They acknowledge that he is a reader of the heart. He is a heart reader. He is the heart knower of all men. He, do you know he even knows your heart better than you know it? Because we can deceive ourselves, but he really knows us. The church and the office of the apostolate and the mission, 
The whole mission was the Lord's. He alone knew who he wanted to fill this office. So, so others had to find out what his will was, what his choice was. Our job isn't to choose. Our job is to seek to know who or what he has already chosen. You know, we want to align our wills with his will. Well, I'm going to skip that because of time, but you know, when when, uh, Saul wasn't accepted very well at first, (laughs) and when he was, and a man named Ananias was supposed to go get Saul up in Damascus, he said, oh Lord, you must have this wrong. Are you kidding? He's the one who's persecuting the church. You know what the Lord said to Ananias? He said, go thy way, for he is a chosen vessel unto me. You go get him. I chose him. Paul was not an apostle of the same kind as the twelve. He could not have made met the divine qualifications that were laid down here in Acts 1, verses 21 and 22. In his own writings, Paul indicates that he was not to be included or classified with the twelve. He was an apostle out of season a different kind of an apostle. It was important that there would be 12 Jewish apostolic witnesses to the 12 tribes of Israel gathered together for the Feast of Pentecost. Okay, are you getting me? All the people are going to be gathered together for that feast because that's one of the three mandatory feasts to go to Jerusalem. So all the men from all the 12 tribes were going to be there. And that's when the church is going to be born and they're going to hear the gospel in their own native languages, okay? So it's very important that there be 12 Jewish men to witness to the 12 tribes of Israel on the day of Pentecost. So this vacancy needed to be filled before the day of Pentecost. Now once the gospel message went out to the Gentiles, the Jewish emphasis began to its decline. You know, first to the Jew and then to the Greek. Do you notice that when the Apostle James was martyred, when James was martyred, and he was the uh, first apostle to be killed, that's in Acts 12 too, there was no replacement made for James. No apostle chosen to fill the place for James. Why? Well, because the official witness to Israel was completed and the message was going out to both Jews and Gentiles. So there was no more need for the 12 apostles to give the gospel witness to the 12 tribes of Israel. Paul was basically called to be an apostle to the who? To the Gentiles. Remember how we talked about how there were actually 13 tribes of Israel? Because Joseph didn't have a tribe, but both of his sons did. And Benjamin was the last tribe. If you count them, there's 13. And Paul is actually from the tribe of of of, uh, Benjamin. It's all very interesting how it fits out. Now, I believe that in the new Jerusalem, there will be 12 men who sit on 12 thrones of Israel judging the 12 tribes and whose names will be on the foundation stones of that city, the new Jerusalem. And I believe the name of Matthias will be one of them. Now, there's going to be a special place for the Apostle Paul, so don't feel sorry for him. I don't know what it'll be, but it'll be something special. But I believe that Matthias was rightly chosen 
In your notes, you can look about the casting of lots. That was all okay, too, all right, because it was the end of the Old Testament dispensation. They would never do it again, but it was something that God had allowed in the Old Testament when you had to make a choice. Actually, it says in Proverbs uh, 16.33, the lot is cast into the lap, but the whole disposing thereof is of the Lord. I believe Matthias was God's choice to replace the vacancy of Judas Iscariot. Just so happens, you know what Matthias' name means? Gift of God. Hmm. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would lead us, every one of us, in the paths of righteousness for your name's sake. Help us and guide us and empower us to purpose to live with a with a due sense of responsibility, not as others who do not know the meaning of life, but as those who do. Because we're, we're not here just for the purpose of, of satisfying self and trying to live out the American dream and, and experience as little trouble or as little persecution and suffering for your name's sake as possible. We're here to give you glory by the words that we speak and by the lives that we live. And we know, Father, that you are looking for intercessors, especially for the condition of your church in this generation. I ask that we would be more effective as salt and light to the world around us. May we be willing and may we be ready to stand in the gap as your watchman and as your like-minded, passionate, persistent, prayer warrior witnesses. We want to serve you. We want to give you glory. We ask these things in your name. Amen.